I'd like to start with a few questions. How do you consider your personal freedom? Do you see yourself as bowing to no man, that you will do what you consider to be best at all times? Or perhaps you might feel that you are always somebody else's, under somebody else's control and be resentful of that. Maybe you like having somebody lead you, or possibly there's some combination of all, the, all of the above. When you hear politicians and the like talking about bills of rights and personal freedoms, what do you say? Do you say something like, yes, I have rights and I will stand up for them? We all make lots of choices every day about every kind of thing under the sun. When we make those choices, do we think about the spiritual consequences and thus which powers, interests we are serving? Let's see what God's word might have to say that will help us to figure out some answers. We'll begin by reading our text today, which as I said is Ephesians 1, and I'll start in verse 3 to give us some context. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the richness of his grace. I'd like to talk about that key word redemption that we see early in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Now, redemption is one of those words that's very commonly used by Christians, but do we really know and understand its actual meaning? Ah, oh, yes, I have redemption. Hallelujah. Yeah? You know, it's very important that we understand what it means because we're going to learn two things from it. Firstly, the value that God places on us and then our consequent debt to Him. When we see these things, we will be better motivated to act in obedience to His Word and in fact, we are directly instructed to do so. James 1, 22-25 But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man, observing his natural face in the mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it, and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. To start with, when I look in the dictionary, I find that whilst the word redemption has a specific theological meaning that I'm going to go into in a bit, it also has a financial one. And that is the removal of a financial obligation by paying off a note or a bond. Now, notes and bonds are financial instruments, and that's like just saying a fancy piece of paper, like this one. Okay, that's, um, that's actually a pretty dull one. I saw some, some much better examples that had all kinds of fancy writing and pictures on the sides to make them look like they were worth something. Um, but I couldn't find one that would look nice on the overhead. 
Now, the holder of that note or bond can take that piece of paper at an agreed date to the borrower and get their money back. They redeem the bond. And it's interesting to note that the formal term for the conditions of issuing the bond, the rules that govern the way it's, it's used, um, they're described as covenants. That's very biblical language. The point is that these are very serious arrangements, and that's quite helpful to our understanding. What Jesus has redeemed us from is a very serious matter. He hasn't merely redeemed us from a slap on the wrist. He has redeemed us from a life of slavery to sin and Satan that will inevitably otherwise result in us being condemned to hell when we die. That demands our attention and respect. The dictionary also tells us that the word redemption can be used to talk about the act of exchanging paper money for gold bars. And I think that that is a very nice mental picture of how our lives as sinners are transformed from fragile paper into something... I started off just saying, saying that our lives are turned into gold, but then I remember that I'd just been talking a while back about gold actually being corruptible. So... They're actually turned into something even finer than gold by the redemption we enjoy in Christ's blood. Let's move on now to the theological meaning of the word. As we read it in the Bible, the word redemption comes from several Greek terms which mean to set free by the payment of a price. So the definition that I got from my friend, Mr. Grudem, tells us it is Christ's saving work viewed as an act of buying back sinners out of their bondage to sin and Satan by the payment of a ransom. Christ's saving work viewed as an act of buying back sinners out of their bondage to sin and Satan through the payment of a ransom. Let's follow that definition through Scripture to see if it is accurate since if we are following the instruction of Scripture then we are following truth. And if we don't rely on truth to guard our lives. <laughs> what are we using? The matter of redemption being part of Christ's specific work is demonstrated by Jesus himself. He says in Mark 10:45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, you need to know that that word translated ransom here is actually a root word. It's a relative of the one used for redemption. So we are talking about the same thing. From here on though, the analogy of ransom unfortunately begins to collapse. Although we are in bondage to sin, okay, and John 8.34 demonstrates this, Jesus answered then, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And we are also in bondage to Satan. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. The whole world, that's all of us. So it may seem as though sin and Satan own us. It's actually a very mysterious bond. Like I said, this is where this, this idea of ransom starts to fail. Because we know that there is just no way that Satan would ever receive any payment whatsoever from God. And moreover, he has no power to demand it. He doesn't deserve it and he can't ask for it. Remember this. Satan may have some power over us but before God he is utterly 
powerless. Our God reigns. Another problem is that we can't speak about paying the ransom to the Father either because it wasn't Him that held us in bondage. It was our own sinful desire. So, what can we say? As with many things of the Spirit, we cannot comprehend the whole and it is futile to try. It is the idea that is important. We must be content with the image that there was a note or bond issued against us, that there was no earthly currency to discharge. We couldn't ever pay that debt ourselves. But God. But God. Those are wonderful words. In His love and mercy, made a covenant of redemption within the Trinity to step in and rescue us. God sent the Son. The Son agreed to come to earth as a man and die in our place. And the Holy Spirit gave the Son the power to do His work here. Through those actions, the note was redeemed and paid off and we are released from our slavery to sin. That's fantastic. That's great news. But what are we released to? Must we now party on, dude? We're free? No. No. One commentator puts it like this. Because the believer has been bought by Christ, he belongs to Christ and is Christ's slave. The redeemed are paradoxically, and that paradoxically is just a flash word for situations that seem to be absurd or appear to contradict each other. The redeemed are paradoxically slaves, the slaves of God, for they were bought at a price. Believers are not bought by Christ into a liberty of selfish ease. Rather, since they have been bought by God at a terrible cost, they have become God's slaves to do His will. I just have to ask, whose slavery does your life exhibit? Is it slavery to sin or slavery to Christ? If to Christ are we obedient slaves, do we please our master every day in what we do outside this building? Do we do his will? We need to think very carefully about that. Do you remember in our study of James how he introduces himself in verse 1? He says, James, a doulos, a slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You might find the idea of being a slave distasteful. It certainly has strong negative connotations for many. And since a lot of today's rhetoric revolves around the concepts of personal freedom and human rights, the idea that one might be in any type of bondage will be strongly rejected. We also know that the life of a slave isn't always pleasant. Slaves might be required to work long and hard at tasks they do not favour and the environment isn't always air-conditioned. However, the facts remain. Scripture is certain and truthful. We are slaves whether we like it or not but we do have two choices of ownership. Either we will live our lives out as slaves to Satan, a master whose selfish aim is to kill and destroy and steal, or we will be slaves to Christ who has bled to pay for our redemption 
who has planned for us eternal life in heaven. Who will you serve this day, this hour, this minute? Let us be very clear. If you are not a believer, Jesus is calling you to his service. Now he is talking to you. What will you do? Will you repent of your sin and accept Christ as your Savior? Will you follow him for the rest of your life no matter what? Or will you continue in your bondage to sin? I urge you to make the right choice and turn to the Lord. If on the other hand you are a believer, then how will you serve? And of course, I stand personally impaled by this question too. I shudder to think of how I fail throughout the day, every day. Because I'm not talking about those times when we serve in our ministry. You know, like now I'm standing up here and I'm preaching to you, that's my ministry. I'm talking about something that is bigger and more consistent. How we ought to be living every part of every day. You might have noticed that the title of my sermon contains an unusual word. It is recidivism. Now, my wife is always gently encouraging me to use shorter words. So, roundabout now, she's probably muttering and looking for a big stick. That's the gentle part. But it, in this case, it was a very appropriate word because it means habitually relapsing into crime. It comes from a Latin word that means falling back. Doesn't that describe us so well? We are always falling back. We are recidivists. We know what we ought to be doing, but we more often do the opposite. We fall into sin, as Paul describes so honestly and eloquently in the book of Romans, chapter 7. For what I'm doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that is what I do. If that's a human condition present even in a saint like Paul, then what hope is there for me? Well, he goes on a little bit later in the same passage. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of, mind, of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's exactly it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Think about Paul for a moment. Here is a man directly chosen and called by God, filled with the Holy Spirit. We know from his writings that he is possessed by an intense passion for preaching the gospel that few of us will ever share. He gladly suffers hardship in the service of his Lord and yet we find him speaking in a most human way just like any one of us about his struggles with sin. It demonstrates that no man, however holy he might be, has the capacity to free himself on his own from sin's bondage. We are only delivered from this body of death, as Paul puts it, 
by Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has redeemed us and rescued us by the shedding of His blood. When it seems that there is no hope or good in us and we should just give up, we can cling to the unshakable security of Jesus' redemption since the measure of forgiveness that we enjoy is profound. Let me read verse 7 again. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin, according to the riches of His grace. For the purpose of better understanding, I'd like to suggest that we replace the phrase according to with measured by. So it reads, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, measured by the richness of His grace. Paul compares our forgiveness to the size of God's grace. How big do you think that might be? That grace is huge. That grace is perfect. That grace is a measure too large for any man to comprehend. Praise God for giving us that grace so freely. We have the complete forgiveness of sins that rests on ransom. Forgiveness which means the bearing away of all of our sins and shortcomings. God's forgiveness is unqualified and unchanging. His word is very specific in telling us what he has done with our sins. And these will be familiar phrases to you. He has blotted them out. He has removed them. He has cast them behind his back. He has cast them into the depths of the sea. And he remembers them no more. God's forgiveness is free, full, and final. When He forgives, He forgets. And that forgetfulness is born in redemption. Now I want to carry on talking about this idea of us falling back. What are we falling back from? Let me answer like this. When God chose Israel to be His people, It was in a world that was characterized by the worship of false gods. They'd got it into a very bad place. Remember that when Abraham arrives on the biblical scene just after mankind has been scattered throughout the earth because of their arrogant construction of the Tower of Babel, it seems that praise and worship of the Lord was a very long way down their list of must-dos. God's intention was for his special nation to be a light to the whole world, a visible demonstration of the might and glory and power of the one true God, of his goodness and love. And it was meant to draw all of mankind back to him. Look and see that the Lord is good. Brethren, that mission has not changed, except that it is now the mission of all Christians to fulfill it. We are supposed to be salt and light in this day, wherever we go. If we are with our families, then how are we Christians with our families? If we are friends, then how do we display God's light to them? If we are at work, where do our colleagues see Jesus? If we belong to a club, who do the members know to be our master? This is what we were redeemed for, paid for in the most precious coin, blood. Blood freely shed by God humbly become flesh to pay a debt he did not owe. 
Friends, sadly, we fall back daily from that task. I believe it is clear that we must try to be doing better. And how we may do that is not a decision to be put off till tomorrow. It is an action to make today. So what will it be? Lord, thank you for giving us this moment of quiet to squarely contemplate our lives before you. Father, thank you that you are a loving master, that you do not have a harsh hand. Thank you that you will deal with us as we have approached you. Thank you for this word that has pierced us so deeply. I pray, Lord, that you will have great fruit in time to come. For your glory, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.